What's up, Bike Rumor fans? This is your host, Anna Schwinn, taking over the Bike Rumor podcast from Tyler Benedict, again. We are continuing our pre-show series on the upcoming Philadelphia Bike Expo, coming up on November 2nd and 3rd at the Pennsylvania Expo Center in the city of sisterly affection, Philadelphia, PA. Last episode, we spoke with the fabulous frame builder, Julianne Petalino, about her ambitious process and about what she's bringing to the show this year. This week, I'm excited to introduce the winner of the Philadelphia Bike Expo and SRAM Inclusivity and Frame Building Scholarship that is newest to the craft. By day, Jackie Mountner is the mild-mannered production manager at Breadwinner Cycles, working alongside legends of the craft Tony Pereira and Ira Ryan. There, she spends her days honing bread-and-butter frame building, brazing, and finishing skills at the secret Breadwinner North Portland Production Compound slash cafe. But after school, Jackie applies that level of craftsmanship to her exciting side project, Untitled Cycles. I'll let her speak to all of that because I'm here with the fabulous Jackie Mountner. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I, uh, I went skateboarding this morning, so I kind of got out some jitters <laughs> and <laughs> was able to exist in my body for a little while. That's fabulous to hear. What's interesting about Jackie uh, is that your default bike setting is polo, and specifically hardcore bike polo. Can you can you talk about that and how that set this the stage for you getting into frame building? Yeah, sure. I think that what I first sort of fell in love with biking, besides commuting and just the freedom that that allowed, was bike polo. And it's a sport that I sort of stumbled across. I didn't really understand at first, but happened to watch it in New York City. And everyone was playing on different types of bikes at that time. And that was probably 2009 or 10. Everyone sort of just modified bikes to suit their needs. So the spectrum was really wide in terms of what people were riding. A lot of people were riding track bikes. Some were riding fixed gear. A lot at that time had switched over to freewheel. When I started putting things together and getting into frame building, it seemed like a great area to explore with geometry kind of up in the air. And I wouldn't call it my default bike, but I would certainly call it a foundational way to understand creating bikes. So what were you riding in bike polo? What what bikes were you modifying? I, I had a few bikes. A couple of them were road bikes turned flat bar, clipless pedals, just kind of random bikes. I finally got a leader Mordecai, which is this fixed gear freestyle frame. It sort of was terrible. It was <laughs> like it was kind of like riding a big Cadillac on the court. For the particular purpose of polo, I, I don't think it was that great. At that time, I was also uh, making a leap over to Portland and thinking about taking a UBI course. I also had stumbled across a pair of hoops for a really good deal from Velocity that were 26 inch. From these hoops, I started thinking about a 26 inch polo bike for myself, which at that time was nothing new. Um, a number of builders were offering that, but I wanted to give it a try. Do you want to speak to why small wheels are relevant on a on a polo bike? Sure. So I think that the geometry that I was hoping to achieve is a shorter wheelbase, more nimble, tighter turning, uh, more not heavy gearing, but, you know, acceleration sided gearing. And it was a new thing for me. I mean, every time you ride a bike, you sort of adapt to it and learn its limits. And every bike has different limits. So I couldn't really fully picture even just test riding someone else's bike for a game, how it would handle like. So I took into consideration things like pedal strike, which 
is not a fun thing to experience while you're in the middle of a game. I took into consideration chainstay length to really try to dial in the wheelbase and geometry, sort of copying your typical track angles, 74, seat tube, head tube. I could certainly carve tighter at different speeds. It was definitely more nimble. It still had enough being steady at high speeds as well, like when you're really charging on an open court. Why did you decide that you wanted to take the UBI class? And were you looking to get into frame building full-time? I sort of was. I think that in making a big leap to come to Portland from New York City, I hoped that it would yield me a job in the bike industry at large in some capacity. And at that time, I hadn't worked in the bike industry at all, professionally at least. You know, I was sort of repairing bikes as a self-taught mechanic, you know, without a breadth of knowledge under my belt at that time. And so when I came here, I first got a job at a repair shop. Yeah, it was the Community Cycling Center, which is the nonprofit bike shop here. So I got my start there in the bike industry, and I had just taken the UBI course before officially starting. And I think that the class was really helpful for me to understand the whole process of frame building in a structured environment, which I think I I prefer. I tend to retain more information that way. Ooh, question. Did you have any sort of metal crafting skills coming into this? Yeah, I had a little bit. I went to an architecture school that was very heavily dependent on the wood wood and metal workshop that we would build our architecture models and mock-ups and all sorts and you know I took sculpture classes through the art school so I did a lot of stick welding at the time I did very little brazing in fact it it wasn't until I started brazing again that I even remember that I dabbled in it when I was in college (laughs) um so I did have a little bit of metalwork experience, and it was just general fabrication experience that I applied to a number of different things, whether that was creating art, working for other artists. Um, I worked for Matthew Barney for a month doing sculptures. I worked in a factory where I was helping to assemble and create pieces for commercial cabinetry. So I have like a pretty wide fabrication background, more of like a uh, jack-of-all-trades and master of none. <laughs> so you go to UBI. Can you can you talk about that experience? Sorry, you're the newest and the youngest frame builder in this whole sort of mashup. So we're going to talk about going to frame yeah. building school. Sure. Let's talk about it. <laughs> cool. It's fresh on my mind because it was only four years ago. Yeah. Four years ago. <laughs> Or five, I don't know. But yeah, so I went to UBI. You know, it's a bit pricey for someone who doesn't have too much money. But I put it all on my credit card and didn't really think about it too much. Because I really was, at that time, trying to commit to making it happen. Taking the class at UBI was sort of my first uh, shot at that. The next step, I think, was the harder step, which is trying to create a frame on your own with whatever means you have. Unless you have, you know, a shop supporting you that has all the bills and whistles for a bike manufacturing shop. So what do what do they prepare you with at UBI? So you go in and there's a class and you're there with what? I had about six classmates. They're there for different reasons. Some are hobbyists, 
for aspiring hobbyists. Some just want to make one frame and that'll be their one frame that they make for themselves. And they just want to enjoy a custom frame that they built themselves. And a few other, a few people were really hoping to try to make a career out of it in one way or another. I actually, I follow a couple of my classmates who are doing really beautiful work. Sean Killen in, uh, in Australia. If you've heard of the Bland Bicycle, this Blandford, he does really beautiful work. He's local here and I think he has a full-time job but also creates really beautiful bikes on the side. It's pretty interesting following along my classmates doing different things with it and um, it was great to learn how to build a bike. Each frame building school is very different. If you go to the Bicycle Academy in England, the the way that they teach most people coming into the school is gas flux fillet brazing. Yep. Lots of hand tools because from an infrastructure standpoint, shops there just don't have a lot of space for, you know, massive machinery, so it's a lot of filing and yep. hand cutting things. But UBI can go for all of these different processes. There are sometimes visiting uh, builders that are instructing. Mm -hmm. What did that look mm -hmm. like for you? So for me, I had Tony Pereira and Dan Harrison as my teachers. And so Dan worked there full time for UBI um, and Tony of Breadwinner Cycles, who I work for now. So they taught the class. It very much felt like it's a cram two weeks worth of work. They miter tubes for you. They don't let you use the machines. You're not mitering your own tubes by hand. You know, we do a few practice joints. Yeah, there's just a lot of hand-holding, which inspires a bit of confidence in an area where you have to really know a lot and pull together a lot of skills in order to build a bike. Or at least that it feels that way when you're, when you're first doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, felt like a very cram-packed two weeks. And then you're spit out into the world and... Yeah, and then... <laughs> <laughs> and then you're usually working a full-time job and scratching your head like, am I really going to start doing this, you know, in whatever space I can find? And I was renting a room in a um, place that had a basement. So I could kind of work down there and do hand-filed miters. So I, I did a whole a whole bike like that and borrowed my friend Tim's uh, fixture because he had a little setup in his backyard and braised it up and that felt much harder than the class you know because there was a lot of decision making and making sure that everything cleared and just thinking through everything that now at this point in my thinking about frame building is sort of just built in like I have all these questions every time I think of something if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I always describe it as like a video game map that's all blacked out. You know, you're, you <laughs> see the one little square where you're standing and you can't see what else is in front of you. So your worldview is very limited. And the further you progress, you start to get a little cynical, I would think. It, or it feels, it feels very overwhelming. Maybe not cynical, but um, it feels so overwhelming that you start to learn how much there is to bike building or how much there can be to bike building. But it's really a sign that you're just, you're, you're gaining a lot more knowledge. It's not necessarily that you're farther behind. It's just, you know, frame building takes a lot of time to build up all the skills and technical knowledge. So you build your first bike in the class. What did you choose to build, by the way? <laughs> Well, I built a polo bike because <laughs> I, I had 26-inch rims that hadn't been laced up, and I built a bike around them. How was the bike? 
Bike is great. I ended up selling it a couple of years ago as I sort of transitioned into doing more cyclocross. A friend of mine owns it under the stipulation that if it breaks or he retires, he sends me back at least just the frame. You know, I, I feel I have feelings of nostalgia for it, <laughs> even though I sold it and parted ways with it. And it's yeah, it's holding up great. It, I, I think it rode really well. I was thinking about the, t- the top tube had to be low enough that I don't uh, get into a serious accident if I fall off my bike. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I just, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it seemed, it, it met my expectations, but then again, a polo bike is a very simplified bike. And that's not to say it's not a good place to start. Actually, I think it was a good place to start because it allowed me to really just hone in on a few things rather than think about you know, cable routing or shifting systems. And, you know, it's just a single speed bike with a front disc brake. So it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward in that way. When you got started, where did you see yourself building? Did you see yourself building for somebody else? Did you see yourself starting your own brand and like digging in that way? What was your intention? Because you're a very intentional person. (laughs) You are. Yeah, well, I think... My intention was to build for myself when I first got into it. I think I really admired some of the builders that I had seen in their workshops in New York, Thomas at Horse Cycles, mm-hmm. and I'd also been over to Lance's at Square Built, and uh, he was the first person to teach me fillet brazing outside of architecture school. I have one brazed joint. I've been incorporated into one of breadwinner's workbenches now so it still lives but yeah I think I had always aimed to sort of be the one person builder and I think that's that idea has evolved over time I really think that frame building needs needs more community especially amongst women and trans folk and folks who are underrepresented so in my dream of dreams I think some kind of cooperative or or team-based brand or or just making bikes I think Um, making cool bikes could be really cool because I've realized over the years that it takes a whole community to really build a bike. Um, Although there are folks, of course, who are doing it all, and I have a lot of respect for that. But I like the kind of story and the process and the histories that everyone brings into the work and contribution. So I think a more collaborative um, situation would be one in which I would both thrive and love to sort of build upon, but um, I'll just have to wait to see if that kind of opportunity arises. <laughs> so we're going to zoom back in time because I want to talk about uh, yeah. your first brand, Tuxedo, which is when you popped up on my radar on Instagram and I didn't know it was you. Like I'd, I'd met you yep. and then I saw this separately and I was really excited about it because I saw cats and bow ties <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what is this? This is cool. <laughs> this is different. I love the diversity of frame building, the diversity of product, Mm -hmm. and cats as a theme isn't very common. (laughs) And the only other place I'd seen cats were, you know, Jillian Petalino, who I interviewed uh, Mm -hmm. prior to you. So I went, huh, I wonder wonder what's happening here. So your first brand is Tuxedo. You're building it out of your basement. (laughs) Correct. Yes. What what was Tuxedo? Well, it was inspired by my cats who were, uh, who are tuxedo cats. They're the best cats. And they're the absolute best cats for sure. 
And I think there are two Geminis based on when I got them, and I think they were born. But see, I named my cats Gnome and Slavoj after Gnome Chomsky and Slavoj Zizek, who at the time that I got the cats were sort of in a feud, and they were, you know, having some dumb philosophical feud, whatever. But um, I, I turn, it turns out that I don't really identify strongly with either of those thinkers anymore, for various reasons. And so, and and one of the cats also has disappeared about a year ago. But um, the other cat, the the name as many cats have is many names that are evolutions of each other. So there's a there's like ten variations of that original name and a loaf of bread, for example. So cats are probably confused every time they're asked, like, "What's your name?" They're like, I don't know. I have like a million nicknames. I understand completely. I yes. <laughs> anyway, so sorry you that have, was that you was have... way off topic, but <laughs> so you have these two awesome tuxedo cats uh, named after philosophers, um, and then yep. you're inspired by them to start this brand. What what were the themes of tuxedo as a brand besides these cats? <laughs> I think that the play on tuxedo, I I imagine my first few bikes having being a bit of a series that could explore you know, the classy black and white theme, possibly. And I wanted to have subtle hints of my cats, although now that I look at them, they're not so subtle. (laughs) You know, I really like, I literally carved them into the bilaminate of the heat cluster sleeve. But you did that by hand. Yeah, I think I did that by hand. Yeah, I just, yeah, I drilled a ton of holes and then got a little file in there and, and cleaned up the shape. And I put a lot of time into those. But yeah, it was just fun for me. You know, I want, I, I see a lot of builders are like, there's a lot of seriousness in frame building. And I appreciate when I see a little bit of humor and playfulness. And frankly, why not have bikes that are a little bit cute too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is so wrong with that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's great. Uh, So and I'm, I'm seeing part of like, a belaminate joint where you've got like a little bow tie uh, carved in and like buttons like on a yeah. tuxedo shirt, which I think is lovely. And then I see your, your cat <laughs> sort of like crawling up another piece that you're about to miter. Uh, it's, it's cool mm-hmm. stuff and it's all fillet braced and your fillets look good. Very nice. <laughs> uh, they clean up well. <laughs> I only see clean they- up joints. So I know. I was very conscious of, you know, only showing my best face on Instagram, just as you would, you know, taking selfies. Um, <laughs> well, you, you although I've moved me. away, I've, I've, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've, I've grown in my my skill, and also I've changed my thoughts about that uh, pretty drastically. I, I think I see a lot of um, very polished bikes that haven't been to paint. I see my my frames come out of the flux tank with a little bit of rust on them and like scribbles and you know I think there's a beauty to that as well so and my fillet brazing is definitely improved enough where I'm okay taking a photograph right off the torch. So. Well, clearly, uh, your Instagram reflects <laughs> that. So what's interesting is you were you were building in a basement and then you started working at Breadwinner. Can you talk about what that relationship looks like? Well, um, I came in as a sort of apprentice. Tony reached out to me as uh, one of his former students and just asked if I would be interested in coming in, doing a shop tour and leaving a resume and 
and chatting about that stuff. And I think it was April two years, two and a half years ago now. I started working for Breadwinner and doing all sorts of little stuff. Just spending time in a shop, you know, it allows you to think a lot more about the the details. Uh, just because you're looking at it 100% of the time, you're there, you know. And I started out doing things like filing dropouts, you know, because they're phrased seat stays with phrased dropouts. So there's a lot of filing that goes into that. And so that was one of my first tasks. I would also prep bikes that return from paint and do QC and a little bit of shipping. And over time, I've just grown to incorporate more parts of the production process while Tony and Ira are juggling not only producing frames, but now they have acquired sugar, um, they run the cafe, and there's a whole little community going on around there that is always buzzing so i i'm essentially their full-time frame builder my title is production manager and we're going to bring in a friend of mine who's going to work part-time there um, and i'm going to teach her some of those things that i do oh that's so, so cool that's so cool yeah. is it uh what's her name bikes on instagram uh this is bikes or this is bicycle yeah i think might be her yeah molly futterman Oh, cool. I've been following her lately, yeah. too. That's super neat. I, I'm so glad yeah. to hear that. She hasn't started yet, so... Yeah. <laughs> but she knows, she knows she's going to work there. This isn't going to be like a surprise. Yes. No, <laughs> it's not a surprise for her at all, no. Um, although she's, she starts this coming week, I believe. Oh, that's yeah. so exciting. I'm so glad to hear that. That's wonderful. So can you can yeah. you talk a little bit more about what Breadwinner actually is right now? Because Ira Ryan and Tony Pereira you know, for background, they were, they were independent builders up until about, I want to say five or six years ago. Is that how old Breadwinner yeah. is? Yeah. And yeah. then they decided that they wanted to join forces and have a, a semi-production brand. Um, but now it's mm -hmm. like, it's like a cafe they've got, mm -hmm. um, you know, so can you, can you talk about what that actually looks like? Cause I haven't seen it yet and I'm actually not quite sure these days it's changed. Yeah. So uh, have, had you been to a breadwinner <laughs> shop prior to them moving into this new space? Had, had you visited their shops? You've probably been to Ira Ryan's shop now and maybe Tony. I, in early 2015, was brought to I think Tony Pereira's garage. I'm actually not quite mm -hmm. sure which which one it was, but at the time they were building out of their garages, and one garage yep. was set up for frame building, and then the other garage was set was up for, for like production and shipping. Yeah, and it was it was so yeah. cool. Uh, it was very scrappy, mm -hmm. and then um, from there, mm -hmm. all this other stuff happened, and I I haven't been back since. Yeah, it really, uh, it blossomed. So when I started, uh, we were still working out of their two, two car garages, uh, in North Portland. Wow. And so I would bounce back and forth between the two, which I quickly learned the utility of Slack because we could just communicate like, okay, this morning I'm going to first go to Ira's and then at lunch I'm going to go back to Tony's and do some frame building. So that it was a little bit of a chaotic <laughs> work environment, but when all three of us were in one or the other, it was a little cramped. So at the time they hired me, they were already looking into different places. And I think they had a really
really good lead on a place that was right across from where Chris Iglehart and Joseph Ahern are building and across from this uh, great repair shop, Metropolis Cycles. In addition to those, you know, that already becoming a frame builder row of sorts and now with Breadwinner in place, um, they first opened the cafe. They have rented out some of the spaces, Endurance PDX, uh, which does bike fit and physical therapy. They're under the same roof as us, and uh, so is Jeff's Cascade Suspension Works. He rents out some space from us, and uh, yeah, Sugar is in there as well, since Jude sort of handed the keys over to Tony and Ira. It's a wild bike industry little short two block street <laughs> or or one block is all we're all we're on right now but um it's a it's blossomed you know but, uh, you've evolved from you know doing finished work doing brazing to at this point you're you're building frames mm-hmm. are you building like entire frames at this point or is it a situation where ira and tony still touch the frame in some way we aim to do about three bikes a week I definitely rely on their help for a lot of that and and vice versa. We have a pretty uh, regular production schedule where we aim to get all lightering done on Monday, tacking done on Tuesday, welding finished on Wednesday, feet phase on Thursday, and finish up on Friday. And then the next week, uh, the frames will get picked up for paint. And in that process, I'm the one on the floor time just committing to that trying to keep track of where everything is what needs to be done what we need to see coming down the pipeline and prepare for a little bit and so yeah I do a lot of the brazing mostly I don't do any of the TIG welding Tony and to a large extent Chris Iglehart do that Ira does a lot of the brazons for the most part uh, and kind of takes the frames from filed seat stays to face chased and reamed before paint and and then we do qc together uh yeah we sort of hand things off but a lot of frame building and learning is happening in the office you know just uh communicating with customers trying to do quotes and invoices like (laughs) i'm glad that i don't have to do that as quite as much as they do but you know they're trying to just keep on top of sales and uh deliver bikes that's sort of how things have evolved you know i've just I've gotten a lot faster at a lot of different things. And in the in that time, I've been able to step up little by little and relieve them of some of that work so that they can focus on the business end of things, which is super important to my end of things, obviously. <laughs> every bike has everybody touching it in some way. It's a true yeah. collaborative effort. You've got to be just learning so much. Yeah, I think that the the fact that it was just the two of them and doing the frame building for a long time, for the most part, stepping into that and joining them and being a three-person crew, all of us sort of know enough about what the other one is doing to be able to switch roles. We can sort of roll with the punches a little bit if someone needs a little time off to go to an appointment or, or any kind of flexibility. You have this brand on the side. You're learning all this stuff in your day job, easily translatable into your yep. after school brand. But earlier this year, I went looking for you uh, uh-huh. because I hadn't seen any of your stuff lately and you would disappear. Tuxedo was gone. And I, I was like, oh, no. 
Yeah. I'm like, where where are my cats and bow ties? This is not this is not working for me. Yeah. Uh, you had started a new brand. Can you talk about basically why why you transitioned from sure. tuxedo to this one and what caused that switch? Well, I was nominated for this women's frame building grant through Frame Builder Supply. And at the time I was nominated, Leah, my friend who nominated me, was like what would you do if you had, say, a set of tubes that you could build a portfolio-worthy bike that would show off your skills? And I said, well, that would be incredible. And so once I was awarded this scholarship, I thought it would be great to sort of spread the love, love around a little bit and team up with a friend of mine who also did some frame building on the side. And so she and I produced two frames. And since we were both kind of art nerds in a way it was a topic we you know talked about frequently enough we sort of came up with or agreed upon like using untitled as the project name for our collaboration i i didn't want to bring someone under like my own i don't know i i guess i didn't want to have explicit ownership i really wanted to share some of this grant money so that we could collaborate. We worked with the title or the, you know, the, the name Untitled as sort of the project, uh, Genesis. And we wanted to sort of really incorporate themes of our favorite art into our bikes that we were building for each other. And, you know, it panned out in some ways and maybe not so much in others. But it was really the spark of an idea that looking at other builders, it dawned upon me that, you know, this combination of a sort of fresh approach to designing the aesthetics of a bike as well as the function of a bike I don't really think the two are inseparable but that you could really draw from this well of inspiration that you know you might have a certain attachment to and for for me that would be art a lot of the fine art that I studied in school still has an impact on me today so I find it to be this uh, wellspring of inspiration to really try to drive concepts into the frame building process itself get and get inspired by artists that, you know, you're really stoked about. So. A part of my life that I feel is a lot like uh, bands starting out doing covers of their favorites. You know, it's <laughs> it's a little, maybe you could say it's a little formulaic, maybe not, but I know a few other builders that I was inspired by, definitely Julianne Petalino. I was also watching Porter Cycles do his Heco Deco bikes, and um, I just thought Untitled worked really well for what I would like to pursue with my bikes at this point. I see elements from Tuxedo sort of like transfer over, at least visual elements. Uh-huh. You're very sort of tied together framed head tubes, which I think are really, really nicely done, especially when on the tapered ones. Yeah, thank you. You're still integrating those little visual hints, like the little the little heart, for example. Yeah. So you've got those little like frame part hints, but then I'm noticing, I'm scrolling through your feed live and just kind of looking at, there's a pinhole on this joint. <laughs> yeah yeah i i, I totally know every you know the joint i'm that, looking at yes. <laughs> <laughs> i mean when you say pinhole and joint and you know 
my brazing at this point, I think, has evolved. But uh, yeah, I I certainly had my moments when I ran a little hot or a little cold on the joint, and then was like, you know what? I'm still proud of the work that I did, and snapped a picture of it. So that's sort of what you get. This this really cool biased cut head tube joint, right? Oh yeah. So is that the? It's like a bilant. Yeah, I definitely see all those pinholes yeah. again since I'm looking at it right now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that frame actually that has this odd sharp shape to it is inspired by a Mondrian painting. Now, Mondrian is known certainly in the bike world for bikes like Look, or it's popped up a few times where people take his painting style, which is very geometric, right angles only, and primary colors only, and apply it to the paint jobs. And it always looks pretty wonderful, but this particular painting struck me, one that I had studied in school, as being a great place to explore the idea of how an idea such as a painting could permeate even the details of how the bike is built and how the joints are designed. Because when it comes down to it, when you're really getting creative with the bike, there's such a tradition of this diamond frame or bisected diamond that is fairly rigid. Now, you can certainly just decorate it in, in different ways and embellish certain parts, but I feel like a lot of it just comes down to your joint detail. You know, are you doing a fillet braids joint? Are you going for more of a TIG welded joint? You know, like all of these questions, the joint is where a lot of magic happens, I think, or a lot of possibility can be found. That bike sort of explores that a little bit in trying to maintain, you know, right angles on a bike that is full of non-perpendicular tubes. So that shows a certain level of sophistication because when you take a lug, you're forming the joint as it exists locally, you know, with respect to itself, right? Yeah. You've got the independent piece and then you integrate it into the frame What's cool about this joint that you that you have here, and I will mm -hmm. be taking this photo and throwing it onto the post, uh -huh. is that you're looking at the joint with respect to the complete bike and the complete frame. Mm -hmm. You're not just looking at this localized area. You've zoomed out and you're looking at it systematic, which is something that... How how do I want to put this without sounding like a complete asshole? Because it's, <laughs> no, put it, put it that way. I'm more interested in that way. You just want me to put it that way? Okay, there are people who think on different scales. This is a good way of putting it. Yeah. And when you look at a lug, you know, that's a you're you're zoomed in on that particular frame part. Or if you're you're thinking of brazons or dropouts, you zoom in on those particular parts. Mm -hmm. Then your frame just becomes, you know, sort of assembly of these different little parts. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the whole picture. But what's cool when you start drawing lines on a frame, like in this bias cut, you've got a vertical line on a bike that doesn't have horizontal and vertical lines on its own. You know, the, the yeah. only like horizontal reference on a bike, really, aside from the saddle, if it's horizontal, right. is the line between the front and rear axles. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got mm -hmm. that horizontal line, but that's that's not, you know, that may be like the only horizontal reference on a bike. Everything else is angles with respect to that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even that is not necessarily a given because Terry symmetries, for example, with the two different size wheels, you know, the axles aren't in the same place relative to the horizon. 
but they do set sort of their own datum line. I do agree that, you know, when you have traditional bike, it sets a sort of datum that is not reflected in the rest of the geometry. You know, the geometry has to conform to your body. It has to fill in the space between the components, essentially. And um, yeah, so the top tube on this bike, I, I went with. <laughs> a zero degree that was an easy way to keep that sort of reinforced of the uh vertical and horizontal that would be mm-hmm. the only that's the only one in plane besides the bottom bracket shell which you have to have that ver- horizontal top tube or else that vertical line wouldn't wouldn't make sense or you yeah. wouldn't be able to appreciate it as actually vertical yeah and i think it's also it's setting a place that can be painted as this cross which again in this painting mondrian takes a canvas and tips it 45 degrees so that it's in a diamond orientation but he still paints his lines vertical and horizontal the painting that this comes from is called composition with two lines or that might be its subtitle i really found that idea that the horizontal and the vertical are sort of limitless right they visually extend beyond the limits of the canvas and so i wanted to bring that idea into this bike grapple with the tension there what's your impression of a bike from 20 feet away or 100 feet away and what's your impression of the bike five feet away it's going to be a lot different than when you get two inches away right so how do you tie all of that in i mean it's a lot of my architecture training kind of coming back to me where we were grappling with the ideas of having the details reflect the whole and the whole being reflected in every detail as well Uh, that's sort of where that thinking comes out of you know i want bikes to be interesting not just in a fancy kind of paint job that you you can appreciate from that 20 foot vantage point but also what about when you're riding it i mean you're looking at a lot of details when you're on the saddle you're looking at a lot of details when bike is just locked up outside and you notice something different about it and so you take a closer look or at least i do i don't know when i go to uh the supermarket (laughs) i start looking at all these different bikes and um that's sort of the idea is that it has that scalability to it and i i honestly moved away from architecture because a you don't have such a hands-on experience with the products that you're achieving and b it's bikes are a one-to-one scale you know an ideal bike will fit you like a custom-made shoe or at least that's the hope it comes together at various scales well so you've got (laughs) But it's always one-to-one. And I'm pushing my laptop away from me so I can kind of see it from a distance and appreciate the horizontal and vertical lines. And what's cool is that, like you were saying, this is is about levels of fidelity, Mm -hmm. right? You're absolutely right. A lot of bikes, a lot of the details, a lot of the things that make them special, um, especially in frame building space, are the details that you see when you're like too you know, a foot away mm-hmm. from the bike, a couple inches away from the bike, when you can appreciate, you know, the the letters around the dropout, you know, if you've got a custom dropout yeah. or something like that, little flourishes. But this bike, it's definitely cool at a distance because your vertical lines, they cut through the head tube and into mm-hmm. the down tube. It's your, your bilaminate theme goes all the way through that head tube joint. And then I really love that you pull it into your mm-hmm. seat tube. So your C-tube is bias cut for your bonded in carbon carbon mm-hmm. mast, right? That's what you yep. ended up doing with this. It's great. You can you can you can totally see that thinking on a larger yeah. scale than just these sort of like localized flourishes or or details. That lower seat mast sleeve sort of 
with the bias cut is meant to serve as the sort of lower limit of a black band that I imagine being painted like six inches high or so that cuts across the frame and fork. And I wanted to also capture the bottle bosses in that black frame. And I hope, I mean, I, I tried to measure it as best as I could, but I hope I was able to do that as well so that it doesn't like cut one of them in half when it gets painted. I put a lot of work into those little details. And at the end of the day, I think it's up to the people who get to experience this bike, whether riding it or just passing by. I hope it'll draw some kind of attention just to my thought process. So that is the frame you're bringing to Philly, Not isn't that it? frame. No. This bike, I imagine, built up with a, you know, Rene Hurst single speed crank arm and going with a little bit of a kind of retro build, you know, silver hubs and rims and that whole thing. And so I wanted to have a little bit of a throwback feel to it for the way it was built up. What what actually happened? Uh, I ran out of money and got this scholarship from SRAM and the Philly Bike Expo. So it's hanging up in my living room. Unfortunately, I, I would love to at least build it up, uh, even if I can't get it painted, and try it out. Because I, I really wanted to try out what the feel of a carbon seat mask might be like with a carbon fork. You know, lightweight tubing and the whole nine. Let's talk about the bike that you're bringing to Philly. Because it's a departure from the Mondrian bike we were just yeah. discussing. First of all, describe the bike. What is it? Where's the theme coming from? And what does it visually look okay. like? Okay. Let's go. Um, go for it. Well, to make that <laughs> jump a little more clear, the Mondrian bike had to be a single speed. It's a modernist painting. It had to be really minimalist in its appearance. So it was a single speed. Let me start actually from my sketchbook, which goes back further than the Keith Haring idea, which I think I was thinking about clunkers for a long time. I really wanted to build myself a clunker. But at the same time that that was sort of brewing in my head and it would be more aesthetically of that style, I don't know. I started drawing this bike with seat stays that kissed the side of the seat tube and then kind of made their way in a beeline down to the down tube just under the head tube joint. I don't know how that's related really to the genre of clunkers within frame building, but that sort of was the format of how the bike was going to ultimately look. And it evolved into also incorporating ideas of what discipline it was going to be for. So I was training for this 200-mile race at the time, and I was using my cross bike, which is the last bike I had built for myself, and outfitting it with frame packs just to carry some snacks, you know, more of the gas tank-style ones, and a couple other things. And I was, like, thinking the whole time that I'm on these, like, 100-plus-mile rides, why don't I build myself a bike that would be my ideal bike for this race? So the idea that it would be a gravel or adventure bike or however you want to label it sort of tied in with clunkers because clunkers are really the, the OG gravel bike in, in my understanding. You know, they, they were like an all road bike as you see many steel bikes gravitating towards now. And again, this is all my interpretation from my own biased. <laughs> digging through old photos but trying not to pay attention to context too much so that it really creates that perfect place for ideas to bubble up from so i had this idea of clunker <laughs> i had this idea of a discipline for a long distance bike and i had this idea for an artist who i whose work i wanted to sort of honor by doing a translation of his work onto this bike yeah the the paint job 
I, I sent you a sneak preview of that, but I think that will really start to tie it together a lot more than maybe it looks now. And it has an integrated frame bag as well that uh, Dave over at Blackstar Bags is making. So yeah, I hope it comes out good. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> it's still not together yet. I love how you're ignoring context. I love that so much. There are these dominant themes and stories and perceptions mm -hmm. in cycling. People really just don't depart from those things. There are these like imaginary, very rigid rules about what things can and yeah. cannot be. And I love that you're coming at this from the outside. You're coming at this from a polo player's perspective. Somebody who was like screwing around with polo bikes before they had sort of solidified into any like consistent mm -hmm. form, which they're a lot more consistent today than they were, you know, back when you yeah. were screwing around. Totally. Them. I love that you're coming at it from an architect perspective, from an mm -hmm. art perspective, where you're pulling in themes and you're pulling in sort of like intent rather than these concrete rules. You just ignore those things because they're they're not relevant to you because you start from this extremely experimental cycling mm -hmm. background. That's wild. <laughs> That's totally wild. It's this cool mashup, you know, like Petalino comes from mm -hmm. the outside as mm -hmm. an artist also, but, you know, she's got her, her interesting take on it. I love that you, you are also coming mm -hmm. from the outside and it's this, this completely other direction. So this, this ties together beautifully. and <laughs> Yeah, I, I do hope it ties together. You know, every train that I've built, I sort of look at in retrospect and I'm like, well, there are some things that could be improved, but I'll just have to keep that in mind for next time. Yeah, my in terms of like how I'm bringing my background into it, I think I'm really trying to explore other builders' work through the lens of not necessarily the reputation that they've built up, because that can sometimes really cloud how you view others' work. But really just looking at the work that I see on my Instagram feed or I see online or I see in person at different people's shops and just getting inspired. I, I think even when I was studying architecture, I was a little bit bored with just like, okay, we're looking at all these architects and we're told to go to those buildings to really experience what they were about. And 90% of architecture is not that. And yet there are still some lovely details that you can garnish from super banal buildings sometimes. You know, they weren't really that well thought out, but oftentimes there are moments in which you can find something interesting. And I think if we just keep kind of digging in the same sandbox, we're going to find the same shit. But if we think outside of that sandbox or litter box or whatever this box <laughs> metaphor that I stuck with is, is taking shape to be. I think a lot of people have given up on thinking that there's either aesthetic bikes or functional bikes. I think that blurring the line is a lot more fun and interesting. That's sort of the balance that I'm trying to play in the bikes that I'm creating now. And that sort of, yeah, comes out of that tradition of looking at things through an architect's lens, I suppose. I mean, the school specifically that I went to in New York City was Cooper Union. And at the time that I was there, it was in this transition period where a lot of the focus was on hand drawings and hand-built models and the kind of artisan side of creating spaces through concepts and, and all of that. And a lot of other schools were more... And iterations, oh, yeah. lots of iterations. Yeah, many, many studies, <laughs> many models um, to understand space. A lot of other schools had, by that point, already switched over to doing a lot of rendering and more computer 
based work. And, you know, I look at Petalino and I'm like, that was a choice that I could have gone towards where I'm operating more CNC mills and rapid prototyping machines. And I did dabble in that a little bit, but somehow I've really gravitated more into this organic way of working that I was also drawn to when I was in architecture school which is really studying things in the rough, mocking them up, doing little test pieces, pushing the boundaries, thinking of all the details. Like it's all there, you know? You know, I like how you're you're framing the way that you're evaluating cycling and bikes in those narratives yeah. in the same way. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, it's the same way I go into a museum. You know, I consciously uh, make a decision when I walk into a space to either look at the what the writing on the wall says when it preps you for the context of this artist's work or I just look at the work by itself and see how it stands up and what comes up for me and what I see in it and what themes are coming up and judge it that way and and not just judge it but certainly feel it you know sometimes when you when you read that original context it gives you a very specific lens through which you're then going to experience the art so you know there's different ways of going about viewing art and i i like the open interpretation end of things where it's not fully limited by what the artist's or architect's intent was which again yeah walking around the city you can't necessarily know anyway People get really caught up in figuring out how they fit into these yeah. cycling narratives. And it's really cool that you have this day job that is also like <laughs> just a rock star day job. You know, you've got semi-production mm -hmm. bikes and batches. So you, you're building up this very consistent skill set. And then you turn around and then yeah. you just explore. Yeah, I want to push myself for sure. I want to engage my mind in ways that uh, doing production work in any capacity doesn't always offer because you're sticking to a little bit of a script you know, you're sticking to certain guidelines so as i'm sitting there filing scallops and in, in breadwinner dropouts i'm also sort of dreaming like well what if i change this little detail on the bike or what if i try to make this work what if i run the hydro hose through the seat stay i don't know like how do, how do i challenge myself Ooh, let's talk let's talk about yeah. that Let's sure. talk about scallops. So when you do semi-production work, and this is something that you can't really appreciate unless you're, you've worked mm -hmm. in a workshop. Within a workshop, even if you have a consistent output product, you can yeah. tell which builder yeah. built that product. You could tell by the naked bike who mm -hmm. had been the brazer on that bike, who mm -hmm. had done all of the finish work. Can you talk about that? How have your scallops evolved? As, as well, uh, you know, I feel in <laughs> retrospect like I hardly knew how to hold a file or use a file um, relative to how efficiently I feel I've become by just doing it repetitiously. And um, so I have like relationships mm -hmm. with each of the files. I'm a little bit of a filophile. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I get a little <laughs> bit nerdy about the files that I use every day. I love to treat each bike as if it's going to get a metallic paint job because that really shows every detail in high contrast. It unlike, you know, solid wet paint colors do. And so when I file, mm -hmm. I I go for the coarsest file we have, you know, the coarsest round file we have and just start gouging away at it without worry that I'm going to hop the 
file and scratch the entire chain stay by like really leaning into it or anything. Yeah, so my filing skills have improved. I definitely tell the difference between <laughs> how quickly someone does the dropouts and, and how I've become confident that I can take it up to a pretty decent level that I know is going to come out looking good under paint and even without paint of course <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm caught up on the underpaint part of it but well because when you when you throw a metallic paint job on and you can see your own file marks yeah it's not um, nice oh yeah it, it, it's no. what keeps me up at night for sure and I know that everyone else looking at the bike is just going to be stunned and I'm going to be the one who sees the the fender bottle boss got braised just a little bit off to the side or you know, these minute details that neither affect the performance of the bike nor the perception of the bike from the customer's point of view. But I think it's important to try to maintain a level of integrity with the work that you do and really invest yourself uh, and go above and beyond. And, th and that's what I try to provide at Breadwinner. That's why I try to contribute to and making sure that our bikes are all show quality bikes, what I obviously aspire to in my own work. What's the next cool thing that you want to build and what kind of directions are you looking at from here? Like you've, you're, you're sort of wandering down this path and exploring things, but you've got to have it in your head. You know, you're talking about being in yeah. a video game where everything's blacked <laughs> out. What are your anticipated paths? What are, or paths you'd like to Well, um, I kind of, I, I kind of want to just keep refining the things that I do. I want to stick to steel at the moment and uh, really explore Philip Gray's steel. I really want to just keep aiming to build the bikes that I think are going to be holistic, meaning from the point of conception when it's sort of a hazy dream uh, with some interesting elements, bringing those to reality in a way that's not entirely predictable, but will still bring some stunning results. And I think that that comes through refinement. So where I'm at now, I feel like I build sort of slightly odd bikes. I mean, this this one that I'm bringing to Philly is not something that I think I'm <laughs> trying to make a signature of by, by any means. Um, I think it's more just like kind of <laughs> getting the weird stuff out now and then really trying to find my stride find my balance going to the skate park every weekend i think about this as well what what is my path of development for me i have some basics down i can do some basic tricks but i want to just keep cleaning them up and pushing them a little higher and a little faster and a little more stylish and i sort of want to do the same thing for the bikes that i build i want to build bikes that are super elegant i just want to keep working within some parameters so that I can hone my skills because I definitely realize that at Breadwinner I'm honing certain skills and then I can more feel more confident be behind the work that I'm putting in. And every time I sort of break the mold from what my comfort zone is, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb and I think that's okay. I mean, that's how we grow. But I also think that it's important to keep refining the skills that we do have. So for me, you know, I, I want to keep pushing myself to get to those no file fillets for fillet brazing. And I want to just incorporate things in a more elegant way. I think that, you know, my first bikes that I look back on, they're a little bit heavy handed in sort of the representations that they depicted and, and the ways that they're built. And they had their moments for sure, but I want to, 
I, I want the bike to really speak for itself without that sort of heavy handed approach. I, I think that's what I'm going for, you know, like the evolution is evident. It's cool to see somebody who is high concept, but also is clearly doing production work and honing and refining their skills that way. Mm. That's very exciting because that sets you up for such great success moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the best of both worlds. We'll see. I'll, I'll try to make it happen. <laughs> There's going to be quite a few aspiring frame builders coming to the show. What do you tell the kid who wants to be you and who's really into what you're doing? What advice do you give them? I would just say really commit for it and, and have fun with it and come up with a sustainable plan for how you can do it in the way that feels good for you. That's professionally, then that's you know coming up with a business plan or figuring out what you're going to do in that regard. But I, I really think that the messaging out there that frame building is hard and impossible and there's no money in it, there's some truth in that for sure. And yet it's just so prevalent that I think it drives a lot of people away. I would actually like to see a lot of frame builders trying to support one another, you know, open up their shops for apprentices to come in for 10, 15 hours a week and start to get some some real hands-on practice and knowledge and understanding basic concepts of clearances and tolerances and how to build bikes. It, it seems like that tradition has existed, but at some point, there's always people who are going to try to feel like there's scarcity within the market and discourage others from joining their profession. And I I think we need to focus on building community and having fun and supporting one another. What I would prime people with is, is encouragement rather than all the negative that you can find easily online. One of the lovely things about the builders for the SRAM scholarship and why I'm so excited to talk to all of you is that you're all very fresh and you come at this from a completely different angle. And as a result, your product mm -hmm. is very different from what you typically see when you have different and interesting and new and engaging product, you bring in different customers and you, you compel different types of people. So there's, there's that argument as well, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of people who are looking at more than just wanting a beautiful bicycle and wanting to know that there's, that there's something more to the business practices. You know, I think people are demanding that more now than maybe was the case before, or it's new markets that are starting to see builders who might look a little more like them and feel more understood and feel like they're giving their money to the right places. So I don't think that that should be discounted by, by frankly, any frame builder, that people are really watching and, and they if they're going to throw down a bunch of money uh, they want to know that it's not just like a great product because we're all trying to deliver that, of course, but that there's some some steps being made either towards diversity and equity or creating a more inclusive community. You know, whatever it is, people are paying attention. I agree with that. Jackie, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank yeah, you so much for so your good. time. No, thank you. It's been really an honor, and I'm just so psyched to go to Philly. Just really thankful for this scholarship and this opportunity. Stay tuned for next episode, where we speak to notable Canadian frame builder and fabricator Danielle Schoen. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. If you want more interviews like this, hit the podcast link on Bike Rumor and let us know who you want to hear from. 
And if you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's like the air in our tires. It's what keeps us rolling. Thanks for listening, friends. You are all diamonds. Stay dry.